0: So we're going to look at this little book. It was written, we think, somewhere between AD 51 and AD 61, so quite close to Jesus' time. And what I'd like to do is try and do three things in our short time together. Just lift the corner on the people that we have in our prison today, and perhaps give you a slightly better picture than you'll get from the tabloids. Um, talk a little bit about Prison Fellowship's work and what that means, but also to use the book of Philemon to talk about what does it mean to be a prisoner and what does it mean to us as people that are seeking to follow Christ in terms of responding to that. And I know already that you are, in a sense, really preaching to the converted in this, but perhaps we can just dig into this a little bit more. So this letter is from a prisoner to a church leader about a criminal. Great topic for me. Absolutely fantastic. But it's also laden with content about relationship and love and how we are called to respond generally. It's a very helpful letter. We could dive in in a number of different ways. But let's start with the characters that we've heard about already. We'll start with Paul. The Apostle Paul, we know all about him, fantastic missionary, evangelist, worker for the Lord. And at this time, he's, in, um, he, he's writing to Colossae, a church that he birthed, but he's in prison. And we, we believe that he's in prison in Rome. Secondly, Philemon himself, the, the person that apparently this book is about, it says he's writing to Philemon... This guy's a se- senior church leader, perhaps the church leader of the church. We don't 100 percent know that, but it seems pretty clear that he's a church leader, and perhaps he's the overall leader. He's clearly also a rich man. He has servants, he has slaves. He has this guy Onis- um, it's difficult to say this, Omnicius, as one of his servants, but he also has a big house. We know this because the church meets in his house, the whole church. But also Paul says to him, make up a room. Well, he's clearly got plenty spare to leave one ready for Paul. So we get a picture of a man who's wealthy, he's influential, and he's a Christian leader. Thirdly, we could miss this in passing. The letter is actually written to the whole church. It's not just written to one man. And also these other characters and Archippus. Now, we don't really know who they are, but scholars tend to think that this is the wife and the son of Philemon. Now, this is very interesting, because if it is true, this is the only letter that's written by Paul to family members. And this has significance in what we're looking at. And lastly, of course, we have the subject of the letter, our friend Onysius, who is a slave. He's run away. He's a criminal and he's a convert to Christ and we find him in prison with Paul, serving him, and we assume the other Christian prisoners that are there. So what's happened? What's happened in this situation? Now we're not 100% sure. We don't, as quite often happens in the Bible, we don't get the whole picture. Now I find it interesting that we don't have the whole picture. And the reason for that is that Paul clearly assumed that everybody knew. When he writes his letter, he does so saying, Well, you must, there's no need for me to explain what's going on. Now, that tells me that it's a pretty big deal. Everyone knew what Onisius had done. He's also run away, and he's run away from a Christian master. Now, you would hope that his master would show him some compassion as a Christian leader. So the fact that he's run away means that he's done something pretty bad. And the chances are he's under sentence to death. That doesn't take much in the Roman world, at the time we're talking. There's very well documented cases. There's one in particular that I was struck with, with a servant who dropped tray of things which had a glass on it. The glass broke and he was killed. That was his punishment for breaking a piece of glassware. Things were pretty harsh in those days for servants, for slaves. We also know that he wasn't very competent, you can tell from Paul's little mark, you know. He talks about the fact that he wasn't very useful to you, and now he is useful. There's a, there's a, a, little, um, a little sort of thing in there, if any of you are fans of Blackadder, um, the Baldric comes to mind, his sort of hapless servant that's pretty useless to him. But there's been a transformation here. And in running away, he's found himself in a fantastic place. He's found himself with St. Paul. What a wonderful place to to have your life transformed. He's found St. Paul in prison as someone who's not actually, as far as we can tell, been condemned. He hasn't been tried. But there he is in prison with St. Paul, finding redemption. Finding his life coming back on track. Now, this is the presenting problem that we see. And I loved Keith's thing with the hands because it illustrates my point really well. What do we see? We see this slave who's done wrong. This is what we see every time. We see the hands. We see someone from a lower station who's made a mistake in their life, he's run away as a result. And everybody knows about it. And he's been shunned from his church. Well, why do we know that? Well, because Paul is saying, will you take him back? The letter that he's writing isn't just to Philemon, it's to the whole church and to his family. He's saying, you need to take this guy back. He needs to be restored to you. In fact... Onesimus isn't the real problem. The problem is the church leader. The problem is Philemon and his family and his church. Paul would have known him. He'd have known him well. He'd have been a friend. We know from the text that Philemon came to faith through Paul. He talks about it, and he talks about it in quite strong terms, that you owe me your life, you owe me your faith. He's pushing Philemon quite hard. And we also know from the fact that we even have this letter that Paul knows a little bit about Philemon, the church and that lot, because he's writing to them because he fears they're not going to do the right thing. He fears that they're going to reject Philemon, perhaps worse, they're going to have him killed. And so he's writing to say, in love, please will you do the right thing. Please will you be reconciled to this man. Please will you love him as a fellow believer. Please will you love him as someone whose life has been transformed and redeemed. There are many things that can draw us into these bear traps, and I was thinking about these some of the things that I fall into. The first one, being personally hurt. That causes us to have trouble with forgiveness and restoration. The chances are there was personal hurt involved in this. Because this servant was part of the household. And the fact that Paul is writing to the family, writing to Philemon, writing to the community, indicates that there's something that's happened in this community that's hurt him. And he fears that Philemon won't be able to cope with that. Sins that we can't imagine committing ourselves. Here's a lovely one. Sins that we can't imagine committing ourselves. Why is it that we have absolutely no difficulty with people that drive at 35 miles an hour in a built up area? It's against the law. We know it's dangerous and it kills more people than if you drive at the speed limit. Why is it we have no trouble with that? Well, because most of us do it ourselves. Let's be honest. Very few people actually stick to the speed limit. I use it as a silly little example, but one of the things that we struggle with even as Christians is we find generosity and compassion towards those who do things that we can associate with, things that we know we've done. But things that actually we could never imagine ourselves doing, they stretch us, don't they? They stretch us. And yet God says, you need to love there too. You need to love whatever Cultural norms. The cultural norm at the time would have been for Philemon to have Onicius killed. That would have been it, and everyone would have been pretty okay with that. And fine. Is it okay? Of course, it's not okay. But the cultural norm said, yes, that's fine. We don't know the cultural norms that we don't see because they're part of who we are. And we need to use the word of God. As Paul is saying, hold on a minute, there's something going on here that is not of God. Your normal reaction here to this incident is not what you need to do. You need to go beyond that. And you need to show love to this man. In Paul's position, he could have been legitimately instructed on this, and He makes that very clear. Very, and no uncertain terms. And he does it elsewhere in scripture. But in this case, he says, no, I'm going to appeal to you in love. Well, why? Well, I think it's because there was transformation there from Nisius and the rest of the church and the family. When we do things out of love and we do things well, responding to the Lord and to the Holy Spirit, rather than just out of mechanical obedience, then that changes our heart too. And there was opportunity here for Philemon and the rest of them to also have transformation, as well as Omnisius. So he sends this request in love. And he appeals personally to him. He wants a good, loving, and harmonious relationship to result and to come from this hurt that's happened. And by addressing the wider church, he wants them to be part of this joy, part of this transformation, part of this change that can happen. The situation might not seem unusual. One senior pastor writing to another senior pastor about an issue. But remembering the players, Paul a prisoner regardless of innocence, stigmatised in his society. Philemon, a church leader and slave owner, seriously harmed by his servant in some way, and Onisius, a slave, someone with few rights, considered to be property, who had broken the law and was also almost certainly a man condemned to death. And let's notice also how Paul refers to Onisius as his son, This is a man who is a servant, considers property, he's done something wrong, he's condemned to death. Most people would have shunned him and not bothered. Paul calls him his son, a great helper, because his context is different from the world's. He steps to one side and says, well, the law of the land, the way we should normally respond, the day-to-day cultural norms I live in say, just, you know, don't be having anything to do with this man. But the word of God says no. There is no Gentile, there is no Jew, there's no circumcised, there's no uncircumcised, there's no Scythian, there's no slave or free. But Christ is all and all in all, says Paul elsewhere. So Paul wants him to do something very different and show the world his attitude. It shows us a lot about the way we're called to respond to those that are different those that have those big gloves those that have been in prison those that are from a foreign land that needs support those that have done wrong those that the bible pulls together so we come to the crux of this letter and he says will you forgive will you restore will you forgo rights Will you give up the hurt that you're feeling by what he did to you and to the society in which you live? And will you move forward? This is the approach that he takes and asks for reconciliation. Let's change tack very quickly and talk about prison itself. How does the Bible present prison and prisoners to us? Have a think about the prisoners that you can think of. Paul, easy one, I've mentioned him. Pretty much all the apostles in the early church. Joseph, John the Baptist. We have the two prisoners on the cross, don't we, either side of him. And Jesus himself. Beyond that, there's not a huge list. Most of the people that we find in, in, mentioned in the Bible as prisoners are not people that we associate readily with criminals that we think of today. They are prominent names, often people of God. Secondly, in Scripture we're told that God wants us to treat prisoners the same as if we were there ourselves. That's what Paul says. Treat them as if you were a prisoner. That's a high standard, isn't it? And they're grouped together with other people, and I find this interesting, and I think the Bible does it on purpose, with people that perhaps we find easier to love. The poor, the broken, the widow. That song we just, re- we just sang by Graham Kendrick has a whole range of those people, and the Bible puts them all together as those that are suffering and hurting and vulnerable and says, I want you to love them together. When Jesus came out of the wilderness and he commissioned his work and he talked of his gospel, they were the people that he mentioned from Isaiah. Next, there's something very divine about prison. Let me, um, I haven't gone completely mad going in and out of prison. In Matthew 25, at the end, there's a passage you'll remember where the, ge- the sheep and the goats are separated And there is a judgment and the basis on which we are judged is how we have treated the poor and the vulnerable in our society including prisoners and our Lord says when did you see me when did you see me in those places and he's placing himself in that vulnerable place and asking us to see him when we see those vulnerable places. Bishop Graham the Bishop of London for the Anglican community says this God enters humanity so that it may be redeemed. He enters suffering so suffering may also be redeemed and he enters prisons so it may be a place of redemption truly I tell you what you did for the least of these my brothers and sisters you did for me he's saying I'm right there Look at me and you'll find me.